The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. And hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 11th day of April, 2021. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way, and we've got a great show lined up for you tonight. As always, up first, we'll talk to a longtime friend of the show, author Eric Sherman, about his new book about the 1986 Red Sox, Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Red Sox in their own words. And in the second half, we'll welcome in one of the 1986 Boston Red Sox, catcher Rich Gedman. So just sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. we got some great people. And some great stories ahead. Social media, we're out there on Facebook. Sports Talk New York, the name of the page. You'll find so much uh, information out there, sports, show information, more. Stop by, give a look, give a like. Also, we're on LinkedIn, and we're on Twitter, at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can follow me on Twitter as well, at B. Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because they're all out there on the website, uh, the Sports Talk New York website, uh, you can find anything you want out there. Well, our first guest, he's been a good friend to the show. He's a noted baseball historian, uh, a New York Times bestselling author of The Kings of Queens, The Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets. We had him on to talk about that. He is the co-author of five other highly acclaimed baseball-themed books, including the one he wrote with Art Shamsky called After the Miracle, the Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets, and, of course, Mookie, Life Baseball and the 1986 Mets. Uh, we've also had on the show Davey Johnson discussing his bio written with Eric. So it's a pleasure to welcome back tonight to the show Eric Sherman. Eric, good evening. Well, good evening, Bill. It's great to be back. And it's great to have you, Eric. Let's let's start right in here. A lot of great information in this book. It looks like uh, you have another hit on your hands. How did you come up with the idea, or do you, was it really a natural progression following uh, the, the Mets books? Well, a friend of mine had had suggested um, the '86 Red Sox because, well, one, I was living in Boston in the mid '80s, mm-hmm. um, and I actually uh, did some reporting up up there on that Red Sox team and um, found myself in Fenway Park probably 50 or 60 games a year, uh, including the 86 season, including the ALCS against the Angels. And since I had done a number of Mets-related books from that era, like you mentioned, uh, Kings of Queens and then autobiographies with Davey Johnson and Mookie Wilson, mm-hmm. um, a natural progression, I felt, was to tell the other side of the story. Um, you know, and really, it's a great story. Um, you know, you're talking about a team that experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows um, for any team in any October in baseball history. Um, you know, the way they came back against the Angels 
was nothing less than remarkable. And then to have the Mets basically do the same thing to them that the Red Sox did to the Angels less than two weeks later, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to find out how that affected the rest of their lives and careers. And the interviews that I did with them were just so telling and emotional and um uncovered an awful lot of new information so i'm very proud of it and well you should be yes some great interviews with the players in eric's new book now who were you able to speak with any reluctance on the part of any guys or any refusals from any of them well i i got to speak with um all the starting players um Mm -hmm. you know with the exception of dave henderson uh, who passed away before I could interview him. Um, Donnie Baylor had passed away. But I did get uh, all the starters, aside from them, uh, all the starting pitchers, uh, the relievers, um, and then you know a couple of other guys like Seaver, who was really you know their fourth starter until he got injured in September. But he was such a big part of that story coming over in mid-season and acting as just a tremendous mentor uh, to guys like Clemens and Hurst. Um, I interviewed Steve Lyons, who was dealt for Seaver and uh, who grew up a Red Sox fan and, um, and you know, essentially missed the party. And uh, his take on missing the party was really interesting because he was so torn, you know, whether to, to root for them or not, because he knew that it had the Red Sox won the World Series, it would have been the biggest party the city the city had ever seen, and he would have been on the outside looking in. So there's just they're they're all terrific stories in their own way. Um, so um, I was lucky enough to do Bill Bill Buckner's uh, last major interview and. Um, and, you know, Seaver, of course, uh, before he passed. And, um, so, um, I, I think the Red Sox fan and the baseball fan, they're going to get an awful lot out, out of this book that they didn't know about the team. And the one thing that really impressed me was, was how emotional a lot of these interviews got. These guys really care, uh, all these years later. Amazing. Yeah. Some, some great, facts some great stories uncovered by eric in this book now what makes this red Sox team more iconic and as described in in the intro to the book shakespearean in comparison to other red Sox teams well because it, it was a tremendous season and i think that's what gets lost you know this was a team that hadn't won the world series in 68 years and and they, um, you know, it was a cold, damp <laughs> April night, uh, which sounds kind of Shakespearean, that the, <laughs> the Clemens, you know, struck out 20 Seattle Mariners, didn't walk a hitter. Um, and it was on that night that the Red Sox were like, my God, you know, we have the best pitcher in baseball. Uh, you know, he went 14-0 and uh, to, you know, to start the season, didn't lose till July. And they had themselves a bona fide ace, and they had picked up guys like Donnie Baylor, um, and you know, then of course Seaver in late June, and and then you know Henderson and Spike Owen. But 
just Baylor, the addition of, of, of his leadership and a guy that went on to drive in a, over a hundred runs for them and Clemens, who had been injured, um, on and off the previous couple of seasons, now he was healthy. So now they had Clemens, they had Hurst, they had Oil Can Boyd, who was a terrific pitcher. Um, oh, and, and then in addition to what they had in the bullpen with Stanley, you know, who, you know, everyone remembers the wild pitch, but, mm-hmm. you know, Stanley was a fine relief pitcher. Well, they picked up Joe, Joe Sambito, uh, a lefty that they needed badly out in the bullpen. He went out and saved 14 games. And then Calvin Ciraldi at midseason came out of nowhere. They brought him up from the minors and he had a microscopic ERA in the second half of the season. Again, easy to forget because of what happened in game six and seven of the World Series, but a Shakespearean team because they were, you know, the, they accomplished so much. Um, but then at the very end, it was like a tragedy. Tragedy, you know, They were right. one strike away and uh, couldn't get it done. We are speaking with Eric Sherman tonight about his book on the 1986 Boston Red Sox. Now, a lot is said about Bill Buckner, about, of course, the legendary play with Mookie Wilson. Uh, how was Bill d- during this interview process? I know you mentioned, Eric, that it was the, the last major interview that he did. And uh, by now, I would imagine Bill is resigned to to uh, the situation. And uh, is he at peace? Was he at peace with himself? Oh, he was definitely at peace with himself, but one of the revelations was that, you know, he hadn't ever healed from the scar. Um, you know, not just that he had to endure, um, but the pain that his family did also in the aftermath of Game 6. And what was interesting was that in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of of that World Series. Um, you know, he didn't really, uh, he, he didn't really feel the brunt of, you know, that cruelness, um, uh, you know, of, of the media until the following spring training when he just starts getting asked about it again and again and again. It's easy to forget, but, you know, particularly if you didn't live in Boston, but um, the city of Boston through the Red Sox a victory parade and a big rally at government center that that drew, I think, close to a million people. Um, so it was a very celebrated team following the kind of season that they had. And um, the way they won the pennant against the Angels was just, it was remarkable. And, and fans didn't forget that. I mean, it was a magical ride throughout the whole summer. Um, but um, it was just the way that it ended I think um, that that shock, it took a while for it to really sink in with a lot of the fans and the media. And uh, But Bill, uh, you know, to answer your question, uh, he never got over the scar of it, um, but he did come, come to terms with it. He and Mookie Wilson became great friends, which is actually how I got to know Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they would do autograph signings together, and he ended up putting all three of his kids through college with the money that he made signing that photo of of Mookie's ground ball that what you know that, that got past him. Wow, great story there, Eric. Boy, now Bruce Hurst, 
as good as a, n- a number two starter as you're going to find that that season uh, with the Red Sox. Now, you mentioned that uh, Bruce actually broke down during the interview, uh, showing the feelings that that these guys still have. Yeah, I think it's you know what's interesting about Bruce. So you asked me before, and I um, I apologize. I don't think I answered the second part of the question. Did you you asked did anyone give me a hard time about the being interviewed mm-hmm. as much as Bruce can give anybody a hard time which he's such a great guy I, he really didn't but he didn't want to do the interview at first um, because he had promised himself I think that he wouldn't talk about you know the series a- a- anymore and it had been about four years since he had talked about it um, but he was one of the last that I interviewed, and I said, well, you know, Bruce, um, I've interviewed everybody else, and if I fly out to Phoenix to see you, because all my interviews were done in, in person, I do that for a reason. Um, you know, and he says, well, no, no, if you're going to fly all the way out here to see Phoenix, I'll give you as much time as you need. And he came around, he said, I don't want to be that guy. Um, but yeah, he... Yeah, this is a guy that almost won three World Series games, including a clincher. Um, and, you know, it, it still uh, affects him emotionally today. Now, he's he's thrilled that they've won four World Series since then. Um, no one was rooting harder for him, apparently, um, with that first one in 2004. Um, but, yeah, he gets emotional about it. You know, I think with all the retired players that I've talked to, they all go through the emotions of, you know, what happens when the cheering stops? What happens when the career is over? Well, what happens is you're an old man for baseball, but you're a young man in the real world. And that's a very hard adjustment to make. Um, and in Bruce's case, for as great a career as he had, and he had a great career, um, you know, he almost wishes that he would have you know, gone to college and, you know, gone, well, he did go to college, but, you know, to finish college and, and to work in a trade, um, you know, so it wouldn't have been such a shock at, after his baseball career was done. Wow, that's a lot to say right there, Eric, I'll tell you. Now, one other guy you talk to, a guy you don't hear that much uh, about on the Boston Red Sox, the great right fielder, Dwight Evans. Now, he reveals to you that he's never even really spoken length about the 86 team. Right, and you're right. Like, he didn't speak at length about it. He's talked about it. Um, but, yeah, we had uh, over over two days about a seven-hour conversation, just like I did with, um, with Clemens and your next guest, Rich Gedman. We talked over two separate days for about seven hours as well. Um, Yeah, you know, Dwight Evans, um, uh, it's hard. You know, I mean, some of these guys haven't even, you know, watched uh, the World Series, uh, you know, the 86 Series. Um, It's just too difficult, you know, and um, it started off great for them. You know, they, they won the first two and then three of the first five, uh, and, you know, of course, it's so well known that they were one strike away from closing out the Mets with two outs 
in the tenth, the Mets had nobody on base, and, and then um, you know they get the three hits, and, mm-hmm. and then the wild, and then the you know the wild pitch, the ground ball that went through Buckner's legs, and you know it was just remarkable what happened, of course, and so it's a tough thing to relive, I'm sure. We're speaking to Eric Sherman tonight on the on the program. Uh, his book about the '86 Red Sox really. Uh, History never revealed a lot of it. Uh, old mysteries answered. How uh, the extremes of victory and and the heart wrenching of failure have shaped these Boston Red Sox since then. Now, you spoke to Roger Clemens, as we said, Eric. Now he talks about Game Six, but he he also mentions his his steroid abuse. He addresses that as well. Well. It, he addressed it as far as, um, you know, denying yeah. that he's used PEDs and, and, and really, you know, talked more about his work ethic that he's always had. And, and that I can definitely vouch for. Uh, I mean, anyone that I've ever talked to about Roger Clemens, first of all, like they say, he was the hardest working guy they've ever seen, that he would run five miles a day. He'd be in the weight room, and and I've act, I actually observed that too when I was reporting on the Red Sox back in the eighties. You know, he'd be in the weight room, and um, uh, you know, and he would outwork everybody. And um, you know, um, he talked about more or less the effect that the PEDs have had on his family. Um, you know, having to go through all that, you know, the trial, you know, the, he was brought up, of course, on per- perjury char- charges, and he was cleared on that. Um, so he would obviously love to make the Hall of Fame, but he's not going to um, to lose any sleep over it, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, he does t- touch on the PED issue and, um, and uh, you know, and about his prospects of maybe making the Hall of Fame. Right. Now, we spoke about Seaver coming aboard the Red Sox ball club. He really had uh, a great influence on the young pitching staff of the Red Sox, didn't he, Eric? He did. Um, you know, it, it, was no, um, it was no coincidence that when he was traded to the Red Sox, they put his locker right next to Roger Clemens. And Clemens would just, I mean, he, he, he at that time, I mean, there's so many comparisons, you know, to Clemens, you know, with the young Seaver. Um, so for Clemens to be able to pick Seaver's brain and for, you know, you know, Clemens to, you know, sit in the dugout with his pitching coach, uh, Fisher, you know, and, and just watch how Seaver would go after hitters. I mean, this was his last full season of his career. So, you know, he he didn't have the stuff that he had with the Mets or or even with the Reds. Um, so he had to really um, go out there and use his, um, you know, the the art of pitching, so to speak. Um, and um, and there were just so many things that Clemens observed. You know, where Seaver would start off a game throwing 86, 87 miles an hour. And he would keep that fastball until the second time through the lineup. Then he's throwing, you know, 93 or 94. And mm-hmm. so there was just the whole strategic aspect of how Seaver went about his business. 
And with Bruce Hurst, um, you know, Seaver sat next to him every inning that Hurst pitched in the World Series, um, you know, just reminding him, you know, you know, first pitch strike, you know, first pitch strikes, make sure you get the first hitter out of every inning, you know, just that type of thing. And I mean, to have someone like Tom Seaver sitting next to you while you're going through your first World Series, um, you know, for Hurst, that was just an incredible help. And, you know, he had an influence on Sam Vito, who grew up on Long Island and, and idolized Tom while he was grow- growing up. And so, yes, Seaver had a tremendous influence on that team. Now, to the, the Red Sox, Eric, the reaction to, to the victory in Game 5 over the California Angels and having really the same thing done to them by the New York Mets in Game 6 of the World Series, do, does that uh, have an impact on these guys? Oh, well, it certainly did. Um, you know, I think they had empathy um, for what they had done to the Angels. In fact, Bruce Hurst, after Game 6, um, I guess to lighten things up a little bit in a somber clubhouse, it, you know, he got up and said, boy, I'll bet Gene Mock is doing cartwheels right right now. Oh, boy. Uh, Mock, yeah. of course, was the manager of that Angels team. Uh, but they still knew that they had a Game 7. And, you know, um, I, the book I did with the 86 Mets, um, Kings of Queens, a lot of those guys were like, well, we knew there was no way the Red Sox were going to come back from a defeat like that in Game 6, that we had them in Game 7. Well, you know, the Red Sox, they felt differently. And, you know, they came out um, and they scored um, three runs pretty quick. And, and, you know, quite honestly, um, they could have scored more. I mean, they were hitting the ball hard. Um, And um, I think the Mets were lucky that it was only three nothing uh, because it enabled them, you know, to kind of, you know, make it into the sixth inning, and and of course they tie, tied it up against Hurst, and then um, uh, McNamara turned it over to the Red Sox bullpen, and and uh, you know the Mets just beat up on the Red Sox bullpen. That game. Right, and Darling had had a whole book to talk about his Game 7 start and uh, how the Red Sox did really, the, the, his third time around in the series, uh, really got to him. Now, now Eric... Well, it's very tough. You know, it's very tough for a pitcher to go three times against the same team right. in a seven-game series. Very tough. One guy who I feel my, myself personally, Eric, was, was a real tragic figure is Calvin Schiraldi. Now, it's really tough for him to speak about this, isn't it? Um, well, um, I thought it would be, and he hasn't really spoken publicly much on the series. Um, I was lucky to get him. Um, you know, I visited him and at his home in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, he certainly has come to grips with it. I mean, he understands that. It's baseball, you know, and when you're a closer, um, you know, you put yourself out there every night and, or, or not every night, but when you're trying to close out games and, and some nights it's going to work and some nights it's not. And it's just unfortunate for him that it was on the biggest stage. And, you know, that World Series in 86, um, it had the largest television audience in baseball history up to that point. Um, 
game six and seven and you know with game seven with the largest um but um he's He's a man of faith, and I, you know, I think he's leaned on that faith to get him through um, certain difficult times, and and he talks about it and how, you know, strangers were reaching out to him after that sixth game uh, at his hotel room and just, you know, giving him words of encouragement, and um, you know, I, I think he got through it okay. Yeah. Sounds like it, Eric. Yeah, now we're speaking with Eric Sherman tonight about his book on the 86 Red Sox. Now, Dan O'Shaughnessy, who uh, has been on the program, a Hall of Fame writer, he wrote a book on the 86 Red Sox, but he says that you were able to delve deeper into these guys and and get more out of them, get more information, get their true feelings. What do you attribute that to, Eric? Well, I... I I think I mean his his book was phenomenal, which you would mm-hmm. expect from Dan. Um, he's a Hall of Fame writer, and yeah, I you know I think it's just the style of my books. Um, they're much more personal, um, and um, I'm just able to gain the trust um, of these guys. Uh, you know, I think I'm a good listener, and I think. That they can tell pretty pretty quickly that I know what I'm talking about, and I've you know I've done my research, and and I think players that's what they look for. Like they're just looking, you know, to feel comfortable with with the interviewer, and and I think they want to talk. You know, I I honestly do, and it's been over 30 years, and I think they understand that in the annals of baseball history. Uh, they were an iconic team, even though they came up a little bit short. Um, you know, this was a Red Sox team. They were the only pennant winner in Boston over a 28-year period from 76 until um, they, they finally won in 2004. Um, so they're a generational team that was star-crossed. And, um, you know, really a team that a lot of people thought, much like the 86 Mets, you know, we're, we're going to be around for a while. And of course it, it didn't really work out that way for them either. That's, that's true. Now, uh, we, we love your work as always and, uh, a, a tremendous effort put forth here in, uh, the 86 Red Sox book. Any ideas, uh, of what may be coming up for Eric Sherman in the future that you can tell us about? Well, uh, I can't talk about it much, okay. but I, I will say it'll be uh, it, it'll it'll be baseball, <laughs> and um, and it'll be um, about an, an iconic player, uh, not on the East Coast. So this is going to be a little bit different for me um, from what I'm used to with um, with my uh, you know Pittsburgh, New York, Boston. Um, type book so um a little bit different but uh uh i i will be able to reveal it um and you'll be one of the first to know bill outstanding well we're going to look forward to that eric eric sherman thanks for coming back uh the book again two sides of glory the 1986 boston red sox in their own words and uh as i said eric may we have uh many more visits like this to get together where, where uh is the book available tell the folks well, uh, Two Sides of Glory, it's available wherever books are sold, 
Um, make sure that you help out those local independent booksellers uh, during these difficult times. Uh, but, of course, you can always get on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com as well. There you go, folks. Thanks again, Eric, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Bill. Thanks so much. That's Eric Sherman, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we stick with our topic of the 1986 Red Sox as we welcome in catcher Rich Gedman. Stay with us, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB. And we're in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island on this rainy Sunday on Long Island. Spring, though, has sprung, it looks like. The baseball season underway. Oh, sorry. Hang in there, folks. There we go. Uh, my engineer, Brian, just needed something, and I was able to accommodate him. As I said, spring has sprung. The baseball season is underway. The New York Mets in midseason form. Seems like uh, losing for Jacob DeGrom. No run support. Guy strikes out 14 hitters. No run support. And uh, that's the way things are happening for the New York Mets. Uh, Luckily, rained out today. So, uh, mercy upon the New York Mets. Did we lose? We lost Rich Gedman, folks. We're going to keep trying. Uh, because uh, it's going to be an enjoyable chat that we're going to have with him. We're going to keep the sports memories rolling along for you folks. So we'll welcome in our next guest, his major league career for the Boston Red Sox, the Houston Astros, and the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, A storied career for Rich Gedman. He was, of course, the catcher on the 1986 Boston Red Sox. Currently... He's the hitting coach of the AAA Pawtucket Red Sox of the International League. And uh, we'll see if he's on the line. <laughs> We're having some difficulty with the phones, folks. How are we looking, Brian? Oh, dial tone. I bet you we could get the guy that wants to, to uh, extend my vehicle's warranty, though, if we wanted to, right? That guy's waiting for us. Uh, again, we're waiting for Rich Gedman. A lot of things to talk to him about the 86 season. Uh, certainly the happenings from uh, Game 6 that we want to talk to him about. Game 7 as well. And let's see uh, how Brian's doing on the telephone here. How are we looking? 
All right, uh, Rich, are you with us? Rich, you there? Hello. Yeah, hi, Rich. Hello there. Great to have you with us. It's uh, we were having some difficulty with the telephones here, but hopefully that's all cleared up now. Rich, as a kid, of course, you were a New Englander, grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Of course, we know you were a Red Sox fan. Who were your favorite players back then? Um, I mean, the 67 team probably I remember the most. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the Yastrzemskis and the Petroselli's and the Joe Foy's and the Dalton Jones and, of course, Jim Lomborg and certainly a host of others. A great team. Yeah, I remember that when I, we were about the same age. So I, I remember that was a, the first World Series I really remember was 67 with St. Louis and, and, uh, the Red Sox. A, a great one too. Now, you played against Ron Darling in high school? Um, I think we might have played once against each other. I was a yeah. senior, he was a sophomore. Okay. You just wanted to check with that. Now, you made your debut for the Sox. Uh, at age 20, it was September of 1980, and people may not know this, but you pinch hit for Carl Yastrzemski. Well, technically, yes, but probably no. But, you know what I mean? It's like he was DH and he got hurt. Yeah. So his next, when his time came up next, I was the one to hit for him. Okay. But um, not because for anything else, I'll say technically I would be pinch hitting for Carl Yastrzemski. Right, I get you. All right. Now, in 81, Fisk is granted his free agency, so that more or less opens the door for you, right? It really doesn't open the door for me. It opens the door for Gary Allison. Okay. Who was, um, he was like the International League MVP. So he was going to get his turn, and what happened was uh, it opened the door for another player in our organization, Dave Smith, who ended up getting hurt um, in 81, and that's when I got the opportunity to get called up. All right. We're speaking with Rich Gedman tonight on the program. Now, your hitting improved due to the famous hitting coach, Walt Reniak. Now, what did Walt do to you to make you get you back on the track, Rich? I, I think what, what was really good about Walter was he taught me about routine. He taught me how to be a pro. He taught me how to go about my business. Um, and just being consistent day in and day out and, um, helped me not be so rigid at the plate and helped me relax and understand that, you know, if you could do something um, over and over and over again and be consistent with your approach, that you, you could become a pretty good hitter. Um, and you taught me about discipline of the head. Do you use uh, Walt's concepts when dealing with your players today? Um I do, and, and probably not as much as he did with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but he certainly helped me understand how to run the race, if you will. Right. And I think I use a lot of those philosophies with the players that I deal with today. Now, in 1984, you became the 16th Red Sox player. And uh, an interesting stat here is only the sixth catcher since 1900 to hit for the cycle. Do you remember that day, Rich? Um. I think it was 85, to tell you the truth. That's true. Oh, yeah, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I'm, I usually, it, the funny part is, is I don't remember what I said yesterday. But I, I hear you. I remember yeah. stuff that I did <laughs> yeah. in what year. I don't always know the days, but I certainly know the stories. 
Yeah. Now, now, who who did you play that day? We were playing Toronto. I actually, the first time up, I popped up. I think in the infield, and then uh, the next at bat, I hit a homer to left field. And, um, I think the next three times I had bases loaded. Um, one was a line drive to left field for a triple. Um, the triple's always the toughest. And the ground will double. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy what happened. I got up five times. Um, it's, you know, one of those special moments that, you know, guys like me don't normally have or not supposed to have. Right. Um, but it was one, it was really kind of neat because it was actually came, we got in a fight in, in Toronto and it was one of those times where I just didn't know how to react because I was pretty angry about it, emotional and, I couldn't figure out what the heck I was going to do um, if there was an altercation again. And, you know, I can remember saying prayers and saying, God, please help me to understand how to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it ended up being a real special day. And it's like, I guess that was the answer. It's like, you don't have to, you don't have to fight. Just go play. Right. And, and that's kind of the way it, turned out and I don't really I don't, probably don't tell the story enough because most people wouldn't believe me if I said listen I, I prayed for understanding and forgiveness and and how to deal with this moment because everybody kept asking hey what's going to happen what's going to happen it's like I didn't know what's going to happen <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to play the game and um well, it was a great way to deal with it, Rich. Yeah. What a tremendous way to deal with it. Now, another special day, April 29th, 1986, is the day that Roger Clemens fans 20 Seattle Mariners. Now, what was it like catching Roger that day, Rich? Well, I think any time you go to the ballpark, you're hoping that you have a chance to win. And, you know, Roger is fairly new to Boston. And, you know, high expectations. Um, I don't think anybody could have ever expected that he was going to strike out 20. Um, but it, it, not only to have 20 strikeouts, but to have 20 strikeouts and no walk. Right. Um, but it was, it was kind of like, as I was a kid, Jim Lomborg of 67, um, Roger Clemens now all of a sudden is somebody that everybody in Boston is going to come see. Every time that Roger Clemens pitches, that there might be something special that could happen. And um, Boston, over those years, been mainly known for their their hitters, not for their pitchers. And so to have a young pitcher like him to do the things that he did uh, was really pretty special. A great thing. Yes. We're speaking tonight with former Red Sox catcher, current Paw Sox hitting instructor Rich Gedman. Now, in the ALCS in 86, Rich, against the Angels, we look at that Game 5 win. Now, looking back, you can really relate to how the Angels must have felt in losing that one because of what happened in the World Series, correct? Well, in hindsight, looking back at it, you sure can tell mm-hmm. how they must have felt. Um, and when you're going through it at the time, you're not really registering that you just you know you're trying to win or find a way to win, and um, I think that was our goal in Game Five. If we could just get it back to Boston, um, we felt pretty good about ourselves uh, having a chance to win. But why wouldn't you be optimistic? Um, the alternative was not a good one. Right. 
Um, That's for sure. So anyways, it was pretty special. You know, you come back, you, you win game five. Uh, then we really had two blowout wins in six and seven. And, you know, we certainly were on the edge of defeat, um, only to come back and, you know, like I said, end up sweeping the series in five, six, and seven. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about game six. A lot of things have been said about game six. Now, Roger Clemens. You're in the World Series game six? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, that was fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Clemens blister or, or not. Uh, did you have any inkling that there was something wrong with Roger Clemens that night? It's, it's so, um, some things you remember, other things you don't really remember much. Um, it's not like I sat next to Roger all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although we were always fairly close, not too far away. Um, but one of the things that, I, I, I guess the point that you're trying to make is, who is telling the truth here or what really happened. Um, I always, I, I, I think I explained it this way. I said, John McNamara gave me a chance to play every day. Right. And Roger Clemens is probably one of the greatest pitchers I've ever been around. And the toughest part of all is if Roger said that he didn't ask out, I believe him. And if Max said he did, I believe him too. Right. And so you're sitting there going, it's just the way that each other heard it or decided to put it you know um again it's it's one of those decisions that after the fact it's easy to say well why did you do it right and so mac had a reason or had an inclination um and roger you know is not one to ask out so um like i said i believe both of them and it, it doesn't really define anything except for i'm i'm not really sure what happened right i see your point rich definitely now the 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 uh, Stanley Steamer wild pitch. Now you you had said that if if you didn't slightly bobble that ball, that you could have got Mitchell at home plate. I I really believe that. I I actually got to the ball pretty good. I don't know if I took my eye off it or whatever I did. I did not pick up the ball clean. If I pick it up clean, I think we got a chance at another plate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting play, that's for sure. Now, they... well, you know, the weird, I mean, probably the, the craziest thing about that inning was that the Mets had more chances to make outs than they did to score runs. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you think right. about it, you got two outs, two strikes on every batter, and before they ended up scoring the runs to win. So, it, it's, it's really uncanny or amazing that that happened. That you can sit back in history and go, there's no way that should happen. Right. Same way with anything so, in history. Yeah. Twist you could... of fate. You know the twists of fate. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, it's I, when you talk about it 30, 35 years later, it's really, it, it's you going. It's almost impossible that that happened. Yeah. You know what are the odds of something like that happen? And let's face it, that that Mets team was probably one of the greatest teams ever in terms of talent-wise and just the type of season they had, it would have been a crying shame that they didn't win. But it certainly was heartbreaking to lose to them, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Understood, understood, Rich. Now, Dave Stapleton always uh, came in for Billy Buck at first base for defense. Why didn't he go in that night? 
One of the things about John McNamara was he played a lot with his heart. And, you know, he wanted Bill Buckner to be on that field when we won the series. Rightfully I mean, so. Huh? Rightfully so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was a that was a very close-knit team. And, you know, again, after the fact, it's easy to say the woulda, shoulda, couldas. You, you probably should have done this, you probably should have done that. And that's, I, 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 like I said, you can't change what happened. But they, everything was done for the right reasons. Like Mac left him in there because why? He, he wasn't thinking that it was going to be an issue. Right. And who who thinks the way it happened? <laughs> it should have been over. Right. Who thinks that's going to happen? Now, now, do you think yeah. if, if Bill fields that ball, Mookie Wilson beats him to the bag anyway, Rich, from your point of view? Um, it's been a long time. It's very difficult to say. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I don't know that for sure. Either way. And, um, again, it's, it's one of those twists of fate. I, I, the thing I, what I can't believe is that we actually came back and were ahead three to nothing game seven. And I believe it was the sixth or seventh inning. And the score ended up being like eight to five. But nobody knows that it's like nobody knows that we're ahead. We actually, the game six wasn't the deciding game. Game seven was. Right. It's like people think the the USA game against Russia was the gold medal game. Uh-uh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah there's still, there still more to do. We had our chances. You, you... It's, it, the funny part is, you know, when, we, when you think about it, um, everybody who was a part of that has their own little story about how they saw it. And, and even how they deal with it, or how they dealt with it, or how they still deal with it. It's, it's crazy. When you don't win it, it's hard to be a part of something like that. You, you do a great job of describing it in Eric Sherman's new book, that's for sure. Now, you handled Darling well in Game 7. I mean, he even wrote a complete book about Game 7 and how he threw that night. Were you guys on to him his, his third time through the lineup? Well, I mean, let's face it. Any time, I mean, he was he was their guy. The rotation allowed him to be the first. I think first four and seven, right? Right. And um, it was really kind of neat because he pitched so well in game one, and even in game four. And it was such a it's such a deciding moment for them. It's like we were up to zero, and they came to our place and spanked us twice, and. Um, you know, then we were, Hersey pitched a really good game in Fenway in game five. Um, it's not a case of being on it. It's, just, it's a very difficult thing to do. I think he might have made a couple mistakes, but there was a couple balls that were hit pretty good. And again, their team, their team hung in there. That's what they did. And they, they didn't think they were supposed to lose. And they probably thought there's no way after they didn't win that other game, there's no way they could beat us in game seven, regardless of what the score is or what time of the game it was. Mm-hmm. Good. But Hursty was Hursty was good. He was actually really good the whole playoffs, and um, you know we felt that we had a, certainly with him pitching we'd have a chance to win. What about the removal of Hurst in Game Seven, Rich? Uh, do you think he could have gone more that night? The, you know, tell, it was so much to ask of him to do what he did. He was so heroic. That yeah, whole series. he was. And you know, again, we had plenty of people. It wasn't just. Roger, it wasn't just Bruce, it wasn't just Oil Cannons, every single person on that team had 
some kind of impact in some way on the way things were decided or could have been decided. So um, everybody did their little part. We just came up short. And it's it's a hard pill to swallow, but frankly, the better team won just because if you look at it, that's the only way they could have won, the better team. We had more chances to win than they did, and they found a way to win. That's incredible when you look at sports history and you, you see the Mets winning that series. And I, I, I don't ever like to think that somebody's better, but they did the things they needed to do to win. They, they were a very good team. They won an awful lot of games. And I guess for the first time in my life, it's like giving them credit for they actually play better than we did. Yeah. Well, I know it's difficult to discuss, Rich, and, and that's one of the great, uh, parts of Eric Sherman's new book is that he was able to, uh, get close enough to you guys and, and get into the topic of, of 1986 with you guys. Uh, better than anybody has so far. And that's what makes, uh, Two Sides of Glory such a great book. And how did you feel sitting down with Eric? Were, were you able to, to open up like you did with me or, or how did you feel? Well, I, I think I might have told him that I don't remember that I've ever talked this way to anybody else about it. Uh huh. Um, just, I don't know, being a New England kid is very difficult to, tell people what it's like to be a Red Sox fan, at least before 2004. And so it, it like, it lingers. It, we'd have people that would play, and they'd come from Texas or California or Florida, and they would talk about the Red Sox history, and that sit there and go, you heard about the Red Sox history. You haven't lived it. Right. And even if you're, you've been around the team for two or three years, you'll hear the stories, but... If you haven't lived here all that time, you don't really understand quite what it's like. You only get bits and pieces of it. And so to live, to have the opportunity to go through it and live it and have a chance to, to set history straight, you know, that you, you have a chance to win a World Series and lose, it was like, oh my God, it's like, it's the stories that every one of the teams before me didn't do. And so that's what was so crushing. It's like I, we, one of the things in your lifetime is imagine dreaming as a kid, a Red Sox fan, going, "We're going to be the team that wins the World Series," and and, and to, it didn't happen. It's like you were there. We, were, we yeah. had a chance, but it didn't happen. That's what makes you unique well, among your teammates, Rich. Is that you're you're a lifelong New Englander. And you grew up with that ball club, as we said, the 1967 Impossible Dream Team. Yeah, there was right. no way they were going to lose with Carl Yastrzemski, Rico Petroselli, yeah. uh, Mike Andrews, even even the great Elston Howard coming over from the right. Yankees. Coming over from the Yankees. Yeah, right. to be the catcher. And, and of course, yeah. Lonborg with a, with a storied season. And uh, I remember having stickers on my bicycle of that whole ball club. Even the pitching coach was Sal the Barber Magley. <laughs> Imagine that. Oh, what a club. I mean, with, with the triple crown season of Yaz from Bridgehampton, yeah. Long Island, they weren't supposed to lose. Right. And certainly then, I mean, Dick, Dick Williams, who it's like he was the guy. He was amazing what he did with, with that team. Yeah, a great manager, of course, a Hall of Famer, a disciplinarian, and uh, he was telling people that's what he's going to do is, is light a fire under these guys, and uh, they're going to play better than they've ever played before, and they certainly did. 
And uh, what a year, and, and what a story, and what a story we spoke about tonight. Now, I want to ask you, Rich, when did you feel you wanted to coach? How did how did you uh, get into that? And uh, does your experience ever spill over to your coaching? Well, I, I think that's part of what makes you who you are, you know, your experiences or your life experiences. Um, wanting to get back into coaching was something that just kind of evolved. Um, I think I tried other things, like what was going to be my next job in life. And for a little while, it was being a parent. I had three children. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and my wife were, you know, just bringing up our kids. And then, you know, one thing led to another. Before you know it, the kids are in Little League, and you're, uh, I, I, don't, I don't really want to be the head coach, but I'll be the assistant coach and help out and be around it. And, and before I know it, I'm coaching in high school, and then somebody called me and said, listen, we have a minor league team, we have an interest in coaching. And so much the same as the prayers of what should I do next, it was, well, what what should I do with my life? And it got to be that, well, baseball is my vocation. It's what I do. It's, and so after coaching in independent ball for a little while, I got an opportunity to coach with the Red Sox in the minor leagues. and. Perfect. I've been with them ever since. And um, I, I guess everybody has a calling. Uh, and I guess as long as I can wear a baseball uniform and take some of the experiences that I've had and learn the things that they're trying to teach and what makes championship ball clubs. And sometimes it takes the pain of losing to gain the confidence of learning how to win. Perfectly said, Rich. Now, you guys ever get together? Uh you Red Sox? Not nearly enough. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we'll, we'll always have that bond, if you will, um, because there's nothing like going through a major league season with a group of guys, um, even if you don't get to the championship. But when it's a special team like the 86 team, um, I, I think every time you see them, it's like it brings back fond memories. It brings you back to uh, now what it seems like a, a childhood, not, you know, it's, it's far removed. Um, but you have a deep, deeper appreciation for um, what you accomplished as a group um, than you probably did during the time that we were playing. Um, and, it, it, and as people would say, it goes by way too fast. And you just wish you could hold on to those moments. But Every once in a while, you get to see a teammate or two, um, and when you do, it's 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 a pretty special moment or moments. And even if it's just a, sometimes even a phone call to say, "Hey, how you doing? I'm thinking about you and wondering how you are." And um, those little things, uh, like I said, they bring back fond memories. Beautifully put, Rich. Rich Gedman, it's been a real pleasure having you with us tonight. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some with us uh, down here on Long Island. I wish you the best with the Paw Sox. When do you guys start? In May? We start in May, yeah. Uh, it's pretty exciting that we're going to have baseball again. Yeah, um, it certainly is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a tough haul, and but typical Americans, we're going to find a way to beat this uh, COVID-19. So That's certainly correct. Well, Rich, stay well, and we'll talk to you down the line. 
Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. That's Rich Gedman, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Eric Sherman and Rich Gedman, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you folks for joining us. Andy's up next, so please stay put. See you next week with Dave Parker and author Devin Gordon with his book on the Mets. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.